This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Myself and what I said, and one of the things, because I think about this quite a bit, that I thought might be a barrier for negative interest rates will be around 2%. Now, I don't know that. The lowest you've had so far is uh, minus three quarters of a percent from the Swiss National Bank. And one of the rates, it was never really used, one of the rates of the Ritz Bank of Sweden went below minus 1%, but that was more of a technicality. I actually think that somewhere around minus 2% will be a barrier. What do I mean by that? Because at that point, the banks will be forced to apply it to the ordinary person, and um, they'll go, hang on, I want my money out of the banks, and that will precipitate a crisis. If there's one thing that the central banks love, it's the banks. They're far more important to them than you, I, collectively, all of us here. And that's how the system works. So that might make them make a shift because the banks have been in trouble. I fear that the response will be quite authoritarian, forcing people to use the currency. Thanks for watching this RTD interview. Don't forget to pick up your RTD Scary George Round, only available at stboyer.com. Now enjoy this interview. Welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Today I'm excited to have first-time guest, Mr. Sean Richards. He's an independent economist as well as blogger, and today he's joining us to share his thoughts on the global economy as well as the financial markets. So, Sean Richards, welcome to Rethinking a Dollar. Hi, thank you. Nice to meet you. Well, I appreciate you taking time to sit down with us and definitely looking forward to finding out more about your thoughts on what's currently going on. There's a lot of things happening and you're currently located in the UK. So I'm definitely curious to find out your situation there with the whole Brexit ordeal. But before we dive into that, for those that may not know who Sean Richards is, can you give us a little bit of your background and how you've arrived at this point in your career? Sure. No problem. There's kind of two routes. This. Route one is initially my education from the LSE was monetary economics, which was credit crunch here, brought things in. Back in the day, actually, it was a thing. In the UK, we had kind of the opposite of QE. That was the position then. We called it O-Hunding. Moving forward, other factors that have pulled into here. I spent a bit of time in the city, first as a salesman, then as a trader. I was one of those people on the life floor back in the day. You may not be surprised in the late discussion to look at, I was looking at interest rate options and that sort of thing in the UK. That's always been a sort of speciality of mine. And so the two things have combined and often play out together in some version or in the way that the credit crunch is here. So here I am, this All right. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And so I'd like to get into some, some, some questions. And so the very next question will be uh, the goal with Rethinking a Dollar is to educate the public on monetary policy and the implications it has on fiat currencies. And so uh, what comes to mind when Sean Richards hears the words rethinking the dollar? Well, then commodities are priced in dollars. may not matter to you, but in the UK, movement of the pounds is a really big deal. For the US, the oil price moves in dollars. You don't care. But for us, if the pound moves or things like that, that's quite a big deal. The pound tends to move a fair bit. Um, so that's an issue. And that's true of everyone. 
that doesn't have the US dollar as their home currency. Does it impact on us? It does in various ways. One thing I looked at uh, two or three weeks ago was that uh, a euro area bank borrowed 872 million from the Fed, a uh, liquidity or foreign exchange swap, whatever you want to call that. Another signal in the fact that maybe someone was in trouble, but certainly they need money, however you want to put that. But you see, that's another sign that the US dollar is the number one currency. Yes, for you in the States, because it's your currency, but actually in many ways for the rest of us, as it plays out, if we take that further, look at uh, US interest rates. In a sense, that's a big deal. So many countries do it. My home country, the UK, has done that great. Currently, we're doing that a lot less for other reasons. For example, Canada for you. Some places a dollar peg. They literally follow it, Hong Kong and so on. But there's more than a few that follow US policy. So the switch, roughly last November, when uh, President Trump had a lot of pressure on the US Federal Reserve, changed things around the world. US bond yields moved. Now, again, that may not be familiar to um, your Americans or viewers and listeners, but when they move, they take the rest of the world with it. I'm sure there's someone somewhere that doesn't follow, but there's a broad sweep. UK gilts move, German bonds move, Japanese bonds move, Austria, and so on. So I think that's quite a bit to be going on with. Right. As so an answer there. to your question. Right. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And so I'm interested to find out uh, where we're currently at now and get your thoughts based upon you know, a lot of the writings that you do and just you following the markets in general. And so at this current moment, we're approaching the end of 2019. And of course, as I mentioned, a lot of things transpiring around the world. What are some things that has Sean concerned uh, as, as far as the financial markets or monetary policy in general? What are some things that you're keeping an eye on the most? OK, well, there's two things for me. Negative interest rates and negative bond yields. Now, I'm sure that's not breaking anyone's heart watching this, but that does have implications. If we take this also to other issues and we go for negative bond yields, um, one of the areas here that it puts a squeeze on is all long-term types of savings. Mm -hmm. Because, now, again, I don't know the US system, but in the UK, if someone takes out a pension, they get an illustration of what they're likely to care. Slightly might be exaggerating it, but it gives them some idea. Well, in negative bond yields, you're telling someone Give me £20,000, dollars, whatever, and I'll give you 18000 back. Who's going to do that? So the whole system there, and this applies to quite a lot of versions of insurance, I think are under pressure, and this hasn't been thought through. Now, when this was brought in, the claim was it was going to be temporary. That's an English word, by the way. In the States, I see the Federal Reserve use transitory, so you can pick either. It doesn't really matter. But it means anything but. On Twitter, sometimes I use the phrase from the uh, kids' film to infinity and beyond. Because so far, negative interest rates and bond yields, that's what it's turned out like. I don't know what will happen forever in the future. Of course I don't. But so far, we were promised they'd be temporary. So like a year, 18 months, something like that. Well, they're still here. Um, and this is building and building. We've seen the European Central Bank cut again recently and then say they're going to be here for longer. So that's what I thought from the beginning, now they're admitting that. And this comes back to my point of the thing. How do you have anything longer term now when you're telling people they're going to take a loss? And a lot of these things have been swept under the carpet. How have they managed this? Partly it's simply PR. I'm sorry to have to say that a lot of the media 
essentially copy and paste these days. They get an official release and they copy and paste it. There's not a lot of thinking or analysis that goes on. And then the issue of the long term, well, there are things around that. Um, people that follow economics might know the famous John Maynard Keynes phrase, in the long run, we're all dead. And that's true. I don't know about you, I'm hoping to live for a good while yet. Therefore, things going forwards bother me. So that's a sort of rough run through of the areas there. And it has other implications. For example, if we switch to a US issue now, we have Donald Trump as president pressurizing the US Federal Reserve to copy Europe. I'm not a fan of that because I think Europe's made a mistake and it's a trap. Going back to my point, we've yet to see someone actually come out of it. If say, let me move to an analogy here. Let's say in a medical thing and you have an infection and you go to the doctor and he gives you some pills. The plan is you get better and you come out of it, isn't it? Not that you're still taking them four years later. That's maintaining a problem, isn't it? Not a cure or a solution. Um, moving to the second issue, which is more technical, but it's something I spend a lot of time on, is how you measure inflation. This sounds very really technical and geeky, and to some extent it is, but there are really big things that come from this. But the first, in my opinion, a lot of lies are being told to people because if you tell them that inflation is lower than it is, you're telling them they're better off than they are. So in, a, in say, the simplest form, someone's check, paycheck, real wages, misleading on those lines. This goes further. These numbers go into gross domestic product. So we're told that we're better off than we are. GDP is higher. Oh, great, you are. Well, not by my maths, you're not. And there's a particular issue in the UK that's more of a problem than it is in the US. Um, for those that don't understand how this works, there are lots of obvious things you could use for looking at inflation in owner-occupied housing, people that own their own homes. So that's quite a lot of people. And the obvious things you can use are house prices or, say, mortgage rates. That would be fairly clear. Most people would understand that, I think. And also, to some extent, be able to check that for themselves, even if they haven't got one. It's readings of house prices, readings of mortgage rates. Is that what goes in the inflation number? Of course it is. What they put in is a thing called imputed rent. What they say is that people don't know my circumstances here, as it happens, I'm in a flat in London, but they assume I'm renting that. Now, in a personal thing, actually, I do have some vague idea of it because one of my neighbours did rent, and I asked them the other week. Up until that point, I didn't. Lots of people will have no idea. Now, how does that work? That you assume someone's getting an income and they behave as if they're getting it, when in a lot of cases, they don't even know what it is. Now, in the UK, that's got a lot deeper issue because they've had problems measuring rents in the first place. Because the only way they really have any idea of these imputed rents is to look at people that do pay it. Except if those numbers are messed up as well, you can see how that gets worse. So that's a particular issue of mine in the UK. Broadening that out, it's true in Europe and the Euro area as well. They intended to put house prices in, but they intended it in the way like, um, I don't know how football or soccer analogies work over there. They intended it in the way that like I intend to be an Arsenal fan. I've been a Chelsea fan all my life, and I'd bleed blue if I could, so no. And um, this, this is the thing. You find that the establishments in these countries do not want to put them in. Why not? Because inflation would be higher. 
and then you'll be telling people that they're worse or not telling them because I think you'll be telling them their true situation rather than some sort of fantasy here. And this is a really big issue. As I said at the beginning, it sounds a bit geeky. But in terms of the UK, there have been years where it's changed GDP growth by up to half a percent, for example. Changes the view of real wages. There have been more of a struggle in the UK than in the US. I know you've had problems there. We had more of an issue here. They fell by more here. But the picture changes here, because if you use the way that people are being told, on some of the numbers, we're getting back nearly to where we were when the credit crunch started. But we're not very near at all, if you do it my way. And that's quite a big difference in, across a whole range of spheres as to how people want to represent that. And it's one of the... Um, I'm a polite man, so I call it misrepresentation rather than fraud. Yeah. But it's one of the issues of the credit crunch here. And this is a really big deal and something I spend a lot of time on, which is, you see, can I tell you, Mike, or whoever's there in the States listening to this, what their inflation number is? No. Can I, however, if I do it my way, look them in the eye and say I've done it properly and it's an honest representation? Yes. And there's the difference. Yeah. And as I said, this plays out into a lot of numbers. And, and the more I look at them, I'm sorry to have to say that things people that take as fact are not fact. Quite often, they're quite broad estimates. Mm -hmm. Moving into another area that's been a speciality of mine, sometimes you see numbers like wealth for the UK. I'm sure they're numbers for um, wealth in the US too. Now, there's an obvious issue in there because they take, say, house prices and multiply that up. Now, there's a clear flaw there because it's only however many houses are sold this year, which is only a small part of the housing stock. How could you sell every house in the US? How could you sell every house in the UK? Mm. You know, only in a very small island might that be possible. But nonetheless, these numbers are done. But when you get to the stock market, it gets worse because they make all sorts of assumptions over dividends and things like that and then change them. And suddenly we were wealthier. Well, no, we're not. And my point is that these numbers, when you look at some of them, when you come to the next point, they're not far off meaningless. You know, there's a, there's, when I was younger, um, UK numbers were at a different time. I think they're at 10.30 then UK time rather than 9.30. It doesn't really matter. Trade figures were a really big deal. This really, really mattered over here. A three-line whip, as we call it in the UK Parliament, everyone had to be at their desk, ready for it, ready to go. Everyone was interested in financial markets. Now, nobody really cares at all. Well, I don't, but not many others. Right. And there's been a shift. But in a way, that's a good thing, because the more I look at the numbers, the more hopeless they are. The UK is an enormous player in terms of services, like the US, similar, our economies have shifted. They've been very similar patterns here. But when they used to do a printed version of the UK bulletin for trade, You've got 36 pages, okay? Services are 80% of our economy. They got one page, and that was mostly repeats. Mm. So the numbers were hopeless. Right. If you look at goods trade for the UK, you can find out which countries we're doing it for, what goods they are, blah, 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 blah. Quite a lot of detail. You can ask for more detail, and you'll probably get it. Mm. Services, we estimate the surplus was $7 billion and uh, that's it. So back to my point of running through numbers, mm -hmm. quite because a lot of things, it'll be a lot more honest to say, we just don't know. Yeah. Sorry, that's a pretty long answer to a question, isn't it?
<laughs> now, nah, no problem at all. Now, let me let me. I want to go back to to what you first started off at. The first concern was the the negative interest rates and how it was it was sold to the public as being temporary, but now it's looked like it might become permanent policy. Now, over here in the U.S., we just had an interest rate cut last week, and so now we have the whole aftermarket repurchasing of of treasuries uh, liquidity aspect that's going on now. And in your opinion, looking over here from across the water, do you see the next couple of months uh, there continue to be of, of continuous drop of interest rates to where we end up at zero or possibly negative, like similar areas in the in the EU area, or or what? In your opinion, I think that's quite probable because you say central bankers are like in a pack. I sometimes liken them to being like the Stepford wives, although mostly they're men. I mean, the last chair of the Federal Reserve was Janet Yellen, so you actually have had a woman doing it. If we've had some uh, female members of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England, but in general it's men. So it's steps of men in this instance. And they seem between them, the occasional exception, to mostly have the same brain cell that they exchange. So yes, in terms of the state, I do expect you to follow that pattern. I can't say how far you'll go, because in my reading in your economy, this, for two reasons, I don't think it's necessary. I'm a follower of the money supply. Now, because of your debt ceiling and things like that, some of the money supply numbers are a bit messed up over the summer. But it doesn't look to me, trying to see through that as best I can, that you need anything like negative interest rates. But there's an issue there. Um, the next one is, and this is very old era economics, but in some ways I think it works in the modern era, the thing of what was called liquidity preference. What I mean by that is, once you go to very low interest rates, it doesn't work anyway. So if you cut from, at the minute, I know you're in the range one and three quarters to two, say you were to cut from there to 1%, say. I'm not sure that makes a lot of difference. In some places, of course it does, someone's mortgage rates might go down, business lending and so on, savings rates. But that's mostly offset elsewhere. I think that there are gains from interest rates, but say from 4% to 35 or maybe the two and a half to two percent that you've already had but from now i don't see much but i think they're going to do it anyway yeah and that's the problem now my next question will be typically when interest rates are cut is usually due to an economic slowdown or recession or something around that line where they they need to begin stimulating increasing the need for borrowing by uh, lenders and so right now if there's only a quarter or, or less than two percent interest rates there's no wiggle room to drop according to the prior great financial crisis. So what type of you know, monetary tools outside of what we already know might they look to implement to kind of stave off a severe recession, borderline something worse? Well, there's various issues. If we put interest rates to one side, um, the broader purchases of uh, treasury bonds, what's called QE or quantitative easing, I tend to put that to one side as well because you see we've had so much of that. And if we say go to Japan, they buy amazing numbers. If people come through my blog or my Twitter feed, I put the numbers out every now and then. And it takes me a while to put them up. So I like to be very careful with them and make sure I've got the same one. And I'm putting so many digits up. 468, 234, 867, 321, 167, 143 yen. And the whole thing. Now, I've just made that number up as an example. Yeah. Um, there's a big, big deal here. If that was going to work, Japan's had so much of it. It now owns more Japanese government bonds at the Bank of Japan. 
than a year's economic output's worth for Japan. So if that was going to work, it would have done. But it hasn't stopped them. They keep ploughing on. So there's an issue. You could go into um, other things they could buy, which in the States hasn't happened, um, in terms of, say, buying shares. They could do that. The Bank of Japan's doing that. I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that. It's, um, the nickname for the Bank of Japan now is the Tokyo Well, because it's buying so many exchange-traded funds. I think it's got about 80% of the market now. It's quite hard to say. I, I do look on its balance sheet, just to explain to people why. But it also has some of the money elsewhere. That's not quite the full amount it declared. So, again, I could look up a number for you, but I don't think that's the total. So the US Federal Reserve could do that. And obviously in the States, there'd be a lot of scope because it's a really big stock market. And if you bought the whole S&P 500, that would be an enormous sum. But again, if that really did any good, Japan would be doing better, wouldn't it? Mm. Um, the one thing that maybe did do some good back in time was what was under the category of credit easing. And the state, some of that form was a different type of QA where they bought mortgage-backed securities. Mm. And there's still a lot of them on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. In the UK, we had a slightly different system that started with something called the Funding for Lending Scheme. What that did was reduce mortgage rates here. I looked at them about six months after, and it cut mortgage rates here by 1%. The Bank of England thinks it later cut them by up to 2%. So that sort of policy, a sort of, if you like, direct action is another alternative, which might do some good. But again, you see, my issue with a lot of this stuff is if all this is working, why do we need more of it? Almost back to my medical analogy again. You go to the doctor for a treatment, okay, you give it another go. But then you, I think you have to start to address the fact that it's not working and try something else. Mm. Now, there is an alternative one that I considered because um, something I didn't say in my original intro, I should have done. I worked out in Tokyo for a while, and so I've always followed the Japanese experience quite closely. Is this issue of helicopter money? But to apply it now, to my mind, would be completely inappropriate. Now, some people would think it's inappropriate anyway, but let me explain why I think it would be inappropriate now. Because to my mind, if you're going to use it, it needs to be in an absolute crisis. So therefore, you could maybe have made a case in 2009 or something like that. You could have said, this is a disaster. Lehman's gone down. The world's going to end. Let's give everybody some money. I'm not entirely convinced by that case, by the way, but... I can see, I can see much more of it now. You see, the problem is, just like my finger, we're ten years up the road from the crisis. Why is it? And this is a phrase I use for some of this stuff: junky culture. Why are we always needing more? It's like another, it's like an addict, isn't it? It's like heroin. We need another shot. We need, to, and of course, unfortunately for those poor people who are addicted to something, they always want more or more frequent or more. And that's my problem. Um, with that line of argument. But answering uh, one of your earlier questions back again, I can see central banks and the US Federal Reserve doing it because you see, they've trapped themselves. If I thought people could look because there's records on my, um, not a yes man economics blog, back from when they started 2010, 2011, that central banks would be very slow to turn policy around because they'd be, having already back then made the moves they've had, They'd be afraid of making themselves look fools. The last thing they'd want would be to change direction and then it all goes wrong. And because people would then say, but look, you did all that and we're only a year up the road. Mm -hmm. Well, that has just happened with the European Central Bank. 
because it sort of tried to turn away last December, and now it's announced it's starting QE again. So it took it only, what, eight, nine months to turn back the other way? And in addition to what I thought eight or nine years ago, the central banks are even more committed now. So again, they're like laser driven in here. And I think they'll just keep going and keep going until we reach some sort of day where we can finally get people in there who say, well, excuse me, this is not working. Let's try something else. And that would mean something radically different. Like, I know in the States, the US Federal Reserve tried to raise interest rates, but something along those lines. Otherwise, we'll just end up with interest rates at minus 5% or minus 10%. Now, in environments like that, that spells trouble for those that are continuing to practice conventional financial responsibility as far as saving and investing. You know, we have millions of people who are told to set aside for a rainy day, save for retirement, but while monetary policy is deteriorating or destroying savers' opportunity to have things actually grow in, in healthy markets, something, can't, something will have to give before they can go negative, deep negative, because people will lose confidence, I would assume, in, in, in currencies, because inflation would be, would be, be start reeling its head up. And you mentioned earlier, we can't trust the numbers, but people are going to start filling it, you know, probably on a consumer level with their groceries and just the living expenses. So is there, is there a risk of something breaking before we get to that point of some type of reform of change with our monetary system? I think so, because to slightly correct myself on what I said, and one of the things, because I think about this quite a bit, I thought might be a barrier for negative interest rates. will be around 2%. Now, I don't know that. The lowest you've had so far is uh, minus three quarters of a percent from the Swiss National Bank. And one of the rates, it was never really used, one of the rates of the Ritz Bank of Sweden went below minus one percent. But that was more of a technicality. The real one's minus three quarters. I actually think that somewhere around minus two percent will be a barrier. What do I mean by that? Because at that point, the banks will be forced to apply it to the ordinary person. So if people will forgive the sexism here, what in the UK we call the man on the Clapham omnibus, or in the US I think you call Joe Sixpack. Mm-hmm. So Josephine Sixpack, if you like, and the woman on the Clapham omnibus, so we're covering everyone here. And um, they'll go, hang on, I want my money out of the banks, and that will precipitate a crisis. If there's one thing that the banks love, excuse me, central banks love, it's the banks. One of the analogies I use is from the Lord of the Rings film. I don't know how popular that is over there. But the idea of Gollum and the precious, the precious mm. for the gold ring. Yeah. Well, that's how central banks think of banks. They're far more important to them than you, I, collectively, all of us here. And that's how the system works. So that might make them make a shift because the banks have been in trouble. I fear that the response will be quite authoritarian, forcing people to use the currency. Um, to give an example, the IMF, had a paper earlier this year where you'd have e-money, so electronic money, and money, but when you come to the end of the year and you try to push them together, you've lost 3%. So that's negative interest rates by another form. Mm. And that brings us to a, another shift, which I'm sure your viewers have sort of seen going through, but maybe not a thought of like this. And the shift out of interest rates, in my world, as I said at the beginning, interest rates in the UK, bonds and things like that, is my world. You see, the exchange has been from interest to capital gain. For example, um, 
Austria, in 2017, issued a 100-year bond. And there wasn't much interest on it, and it's grown even less now. But the price went from 100 to 200. So there's capital gain, people doubled their money. But over the rest of the 100 years, or 98 as there is now, 97, the chances of anyone else making money out of it's a lot lower. So it's sort of another way of, in a sense, taking out from the future. If you go through bond markets, prices move, yeah, but they're supposed to go from 80 to 90, 100 to 110, if you're not supposed to see the sort of moves that we've had. And this is back to the same point. Someone's had the money here. A lot of this era, one of the problems is exchanges of money. Where's it gone? Because if it's gone somewhere, in many cases, it's been taken from somewhere else. And this is one of the problems of the time. And these things like negative interest rates aren't really addressing that. And that's one of the reasons, I think, why things aren't getting better. In the US, you've had a better experience than here, better again than in Europe. But even so, people are not happy, are they? And I think there's reasons for that, I think. Right. Now, as we draw towards the end of our discussion, you know, we've covered a lot of the problems that uh, the world faces. And so are there any solutions out there? And so as far as we know, the, the, the monetary policy will become problematic even more so, putting pressure on people to have to go out and spend. Therefore, there's going to be more quantitative easing, which is devaluation of the currencies. And so precious metals, gold, silver, you know, what are some things that, you know, can pre- help preserve people's purchasing power for the future? What are some things that you focus on or cover as far as how people can prepare and embrace for the changes underway? Well, I, I think there are two strands for that. I think that because a lot of the stuff I've said has been negative so far, I think there's a positive side here. If we look at the world amongst smartphones or stuff like that, or even our ability to communicate here as we're doing this from London to Michigan, there's been enormous advances. Some of that's going on. And actually, I think in the numbers, that's very badly measured. I think it's probably doing a lot better than what it's recorded because the statisticians simply don't understand it. So that's a hopeful side. I'm hopeful for human beings. We have plenty of faults, but we also have strengths. That's one side. Moving to the other issues of how you address things, it's more complicated because I know from the authority you'll be thinking of things like gold and that. Personally, because I've looked at, as a historian, and it's been something I've traded more, I'd look at silver, actually. And go back to my medical analogy, for example, one potential use of silver is as an um, antibacterial agent, isn't there? Well, if antibiotics fail, as seems possible, then they might get a lot more popular. So there's a possibility there. But you see, then those sort of things come as a bit of an undercut, to my view, because if you were using a precious metal for your monetary policy, there are problems with that, like that. Say suddenly there was an infection crisis and everybody wanted silver, I'm just saying here, and the price shot up. Well, that would be good if you had some. But then for using it as, say, money, that's a problem, isn't it? Or a base for money, because you've had a, a really big move. Um, I don't know how many of you there are science fiction fans, but Arthur C. Clarke covered this in the book 2001. It's quite famous. Mm-hmm. But he wrote several others beyond that. And when you get to 2061, which is the third version of it, a lot of it revolves around the fact that um, the issue of the moon Europa. Mm-hmm. Now... As it turns out, there's been a real twist in that because we now discovered that actually does have life on it. So maybe, who knows what he knew. But my point here in this saga is 
that a lot of the issues around Europa in that book is because a lot of diamonds have been discovered on there. Now imagine how that would change the situation. Let's say it was gold, silver, it doesn't really matter. But we discover enormous resource somewhere else, which isn't as inconceivable because we suspect now, as I understand it, that various asteroids are the way that some of the heavier metals came to work. Mm. So that's my problem with the argument for things around gold and silver, really, that you can get quite big shifts that are nothing to do with the economy at all. Mm. But of course, then, you know, the other system's flawed. So I think we have to accept the fact that whichever way we go, be it, be it currencies we have now, if the IMF, say, tried to impose a world currency, there'd be troubles with that. For a start, the IMF's in a dreadful mess. I think that'd be a really bad place to start. Then you come to precious metals, and there's issues around that. In some ways, there's limited supply is good, mm-hmm. but in some ways, not so. Yeah. Not a problem at all. So yeah, I appreciate your perspective and analysis on things because definitely you give us a great perspective based upon your experiences over in the UK. So I want to kind of end off on Brexit. And so over on this side of the water here, we don't really hear much from a, a from a Brit's perspective. So share with us some information on it and that hard line, you know, will you guys leave the EU without a deal and what type of ripple effect may that cause in the global economy in your opinion? Okay, well, it's very interesting. The first is I don't do politics. There's various reasons for that. I think it's one of the things that I got right, actually. Because the minute you go into that called mine, you never come out. Well, I've yet to see anyone ever come out. Best of luck if someone's in it doing this right now. As to the situation, the UK is in a bit of a logjam. There's been, a, as it happens today, a Supreme Court ruling. Now, you see, that's a change in the UK. Um, in the US system, you have a president, an executive, you have the Senate, so a legislature, but the courts are part of the system in the way that they're not really here. And we understand we have courts and the rule of law, but this, like today's thing, is a change for the UK. So that will take um, a while to feed in, which comes to the next step, that we have two sides, and whatever happens, they'll have two completely different views on it. So as you like, in US terms, a bit like the... Republican view, Democrat view on a lot of things. Um, and that is the Brexit situation. We've had um, a vote, which because <laughs> one side wants us to accept, the other side doesn't. So it, there's, there's a lot of churning around here. On the plus side, it does show that many of the UK institutions still survive. No one likes it very much. We have a parliament. We still have courts that run the rule of law and so on and so forth. Moving to the economics, I'm one of those that thinks it'll be a smaller event than what others are saying. Why do I think that? Well, it's back to the point um, I was saying before. I'm more hopeful about people and how they adjust and get on with it. I suspect the politicians will mostly be useless. That's a worldwide thing, by the way. Um, that They'll probably make a bit of a mess of it. But I expect, in general, people to get on with it. And a lot of things ignore them. Um, so there's a situation. In terms of, well, there are, one of the things it is adding to is, at the minute, a problem with the world economy is cars, automobiles, whatever you want to call that, particularly diesels. Mm-hmm. This started to cause the issue because Germany had a really good name as a producer. Then there was the Volkswagen problem. Now there's the various green issues. May not be something um, you're so familiar with over there, but rules changed over here 
which diesels were supposed to be clean. I know this because I bought one. Mm. I've now discovered I've been poisoning every Londoner because my car pumps out nitrous dioxide that they ignored in the rules. So that, that's another thing that's turned around. But why is Brexit doing? Well, if there are already existing problems in the car industry, that's another potential crunch. Because in the UK, it, this is a really broad sweep. We actually make quite a few cars, but we export them. We then import cars for the ones we have. Now, that's an exaggeration, but in principle, that's true. So there's a lot of trade there. So there's things that could be dislocated. But in terms of other areas, I think that many things will carry on. What we don't know, tariffs might be applied or things like that or not applied around the world. What sort of deal will we have with the US, Canada or Australia? We don't even know what the deal will be with Europe. So if I'm giving the impression of a lot of uncertainty, I think that that's right. Do I think that we'll lead in the end? Yes, I think so. But there's a lot that say that we wouldn't. So if a country that um, sort of would like, say this was a game of basketball in the NBA, everyone in the UK would like to go time out. I think people would have a bit of a shock how long we might be arguing amongst ourselves before it gets settled. Because it's a big deal coming, what's that, more than 40 years ago into the European Union, then to move out on both sides. UK, of course, you know, physically the UK won't shift. Dover will still be 22 miles from Calais in France, or whatever it is, 21 miles. Mm-hmm. But there is a shift in arrangements, possibly. Yeah. But I, don't, I think the world will adjust to it more than what people think. I think people think it's a bigger deal. I mean, say the States, but like yourselves, mm-hmm. the amount that you actually trade isn't enormous as a percentage. Because you're such a big economy, it's a big deal for the world. Yeah. But for yourself, it's a small bit. And then if you apply that to what you do with the UK, I don't think it will make much difference. So I've seen, like, for example, the Bank of Korea, South Korea, has put it in its minutes. Mm-hmm. I have no idea why. It's on the scope of things. How big a deal is it going to be on the other side of the world? Yeah. Well, Sean Richards, it's been great having you here on Rethinking the Dollar. Can you leave us with how people can find out more about your work as well as how they can stay in tune with some of your writings that you reference? Can you point them back to your direction? Of course, no problem. I do a daily blog, which is called Not a Yes Man's Economics. I now do a weekly podcast, actually, Not a Yes Man's Podcast. You can get that on SoundCloud, iTunes. That's been quite popular recently, actually. And thank you to you lot in the US because your repo issue helped with that last week. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm not a yes man in con, so you can find me in quite a few places. Right. And as you right. might gather, I had quite a few opinions on various economics issues. Right. Well, sounds good. Well, Sean, I appreciate you taking time to join us. I'll definitely put some of those links down beneath this video here. So as always, it's been great connecting with you. Definitely look forward to reaching back out in the next couple of months and get your thoughts on where we're at at that point. But once again, thanks for taking time to join us here on Rethinking a Dollar. No problem. A pleasure. Thank you.